Joining us today on the Dialogos Radio and the Dialogos Interview Series is Deborah Berman Santana, recently retired professor of ethnic studies and geography at Mills College in Oakland, California, who will speak to us about what has been happening recently in Puerto Rico, economically and politically, and the comparisons that have been made to the situation in Greece. Deborah, welcome to our program today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. To get us started, Puerto Rico is, of course, not an independent or sovereign country, but a colonial territory of the United States. Share with us a brief history of the colonial exploitation, if you will, of Puerto Rico. Well, uh, Puerto Rico, along with Cuba, were the last of Spain's uh, colonies in the Western Hemisphere, and were both on their way to um, to independence. Puerto Rico had an autonomous situation, and on its way in Cuba, of course, was winning a war against Spain when the United States intervened in the Spanish-American War in 1898. Uh, Cuba got a, um, a conditional uh, independence, and Puerto Rico was outright given to the United States. It was a taken, you might say, war booty. And since then, uh, the United States has done various strategies of exploitation of the natural and human resources of Puerto Rico, first with uh, the sugarcane uh, uh, exploitation. Then uh, when you get after World War II, actually the world's first uh, third world development via export-led industrialization program known as Operation Bootstrap, uh, which went through various phases and always uh, depended on generous exemptions to foreign corporations, mostly U.S. corporations. In the 1990s, they began, there was a transition to eliminate some of the, the special exemptions, uh, which was completed in 2006. And of course, with the end of those exemptions, you have a lot of corporations packing up and leaving. And you see a tremendous expansion of uh, big box corporations such as Walmart. Uh, Puerto Rico actually has more Walmarts per square inch than anywhere else in the world. And before that, it, it was the world capital in pharmaceuticals. And as we see, even with that, also beginning uh, a real strong part of Puerto Rico's current economic crisis. And the latest method of exploitation is through the debt and uh, public debt and then the, uh, the uh, demands of the creditors who are now mostly vulture funders to basically uh, impose the harshest uh, austerity and privatization regime on Puerto Rico to keep squeezing the orange. So, of course, that brings us to today, where we hear Puerto Rico referred to in the press as the Greece of the Caribbean, while Greece has also at times been referred to as the Puerto Rico of the Mediterranean. Many of these comparisons stem from this debt crisis in both Puerto Rico and Greece. Describe for us the so-called debt crisis in Puerto Rico as it is manifesting itself today, who is actually responsible for it, and what the people are being told about it. Well, if you, if you look at the, at the media, you will say, well, it is the government has been spending beyond its means, has taken on much more debt than it can pay for, and the people of Puerto Rico are simply not industrious enough to make a big profit. And so uh, that has sort of exacerbated the crisis that we have uh, gotten very expensive first world, first world ta uh, tastes, but a third world pockets and that it's all of our problems, and now we have to take some what they call bitter medicine, uh, medicina amarga, like we say in Puerto Rico. Um, but if you actually look at the crisis, you'll see that, first of all, it's a very small uh, percentage 
of those in Puerto Rico who have benefited, mainly the, the local oligarchy and the big corporations, mostly from the United States. And uh, behind all of this is always the United States, because Puerto Rico does not have any sovereignty. And that's a really important uh, thing to keep in mind. So I would say, um, probably, I mean, if we did an audit, they would probably say that um, much of the debt is, uh, is odious and or illegal. But I would say that regardless of how much of it is illegal, since we are a colony and we don't have sovereignty, the boss, the United States, is responsible to pay this debt. Now, one of the ironies here is that when the United States took over colonial control of Puerto Rico after defeating the Spanish, it refused to take over the debt that had accumulated under Spanish colonial rule, if I'm not mistaken. Now, the United States, which has colonial control of Puerto Rico, is insisting that the people of Puerto Rico burden this new debt. Is this indeed the case? Yes, it is. When um, During the Treaty of Paris, when uh, they were negotiating the terms of, uh, of Spain and the takeover, uh, Cuba was supposed to become independent, and the Spanish insisted, well, that the Cuban government had accumulated a tremendous amount of public debt. The United States argued that that had been accumulated under a colonial regime, and therefore it was odious debt, and um, was not uh, should not be paid by, by Cuba. And in fact, it was not. And this is actually part of the basis for the whole idea of odious debt, unsustainable debt that we see that the anti-debt uh, world uh, uh, movements here. So it's very ironic that the United States basically uh, uh, helped Cuba to not have to pay for that debt with that argument, but there's not even a discussion of, uh, of anything similar happening with its own colony, Puerto Rico. We are speaking with retired professor of ethnic studies and geography, Deborah Berman-Santana, here on the Dialogos Radio in the Dialogos interview series. And Deborah, what has the official response to the so-called debt crisis been on the part of Puerto Rico's government and on the part of Washington? It seems rather similar to what has been happening in Greece with technocrats coming in and with proposed new austerity measures. Yes, well, the uh, the government of Puerto Rico, and we have two alternating uh, colonial parties, one that basically says we can improve the current uh, 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 political status, and then the other party says, well, we need to become a state. Those are the two main parties. And uh, this particular government has finally uh, said that this is not sustainable and we need to find a way out of this. What's what's interesting is that the the government in, in Washington, the federal government, basically says, well, we can help you with some technical assistance, but of course it's not our problem. And what they mean by technical assistance is they will uh, uh, basically tell Puerto Rico, the government, to, uh, to contract certain experts from the United States uh, to basically take care of this problem. Of course, this is with Puerto Rican people's tax monies that we're paying for these uh, experts. And who are these experts? Just to give you an example, Puerto Rico is not an independent country, so of course we don't deal directly with the IMF, for example. However, one of the uh, more uh, important uh, reports that has come uh, recently called the Kruger Report, and Freddy Kruger, that we call her Freddy Kruger, Ann Kruger, uh, a former chief official of the IMF, and she is now working for her own, and, and has other former IMFers that um, have been contracted by the government of Puerto Rico to put together a report. They were paid half a million dollars to spend about three or four months 
in sunny Puerto Rico, basically interviewing some Puerto Rican economists who had done some work and taking a report from the New York Federal Reserve, and they came out with a wonderful, for their half a million dollars, 26-page report, which basically selectively cherry-pick some of the information, only looking at Puerto Rico's economic situation since 2000. And then, of course, their uh, recommendations all come from the IMF playbook. And this is very, very similar. Every time uh, Puerto Rico has to come up with uh, some kind of report or, or think of some kind of, uh, of way of, of, of resolving a situation or maybe uh, working out a way to do some kind of uh, negotiations with its creditors, who do they contract? Mostly North Americans, once in a while some, someone from somewhere else, but generally North Americans, when actually Puerto Rico does have economists, and in fact the government itself has economists that could also do this work. So it's actually a very lucrative for these top firms in, in New York, or for example the judge who presided over the bankruptcy of Detroit has also been contracted by the government of Puerto Rico. In addition to this 26-page report which you mentioned, the Puerto Rican authorities have released their own fiscal adjustment plan recently, as they call it. This phrase should be familiar to anyone who has also been following the crisis in Greece. Would you say that these documents are indeed similar to the memorandum agreements that we've seen successive governments in Greece sign? I have taken um, a look at, at, at the memorandums, and while there are certainly differences, um, I find a lot of striking similarities in the language in speaking about the sustainability of the debt and about the issue of making uh, Puerto Rico more competitive, uh, for example, uh, eliminating or reducing the minimum wage for younger workers to, to make them more competitive, of streamlining the bureaucracy and making Puerto Rico a more business-friendly or an investment-friendly environment as if a colony isn't friendly enough. Uh, such things as uh, getting rid of the Christmas bonus for public employees because somehow that's supposed to be a really terrible thing that's very wasteful when the Christmas bonus, besides augmenting very poor pay, people will pay, use that money to buy stuff for Christmas, and that actually helps the economy. Uh, also, they're restructuring and also looking at privatization of the Electric Energy Authority, the Water and Sewers Authority, uh, privatizing our, uh, our highways, and one of the highways is already privatized, and guess who is running it is Goldman Sachs, and uh, various other ideas for looking at public-private uh, partnerships when we actually spend way too much money on contracts rather than uh, actually putting more investment in the public employees who actually do have the expertise to do the work that we need. We are on the air with retired professor of geography and ethnic studies, Deborah Berman-Santana, here on the Alagos Radio and the Alagos Interview Series. And Deborah, let's talk about the impact of so-called foreign investment in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico has been the recipient, if you will, of a tremendous amount of foreign investment from the United States and elsewhere, with the likes of Walmart, which you mentioned before, and also companies like Walgreens having a heavy presence on the island, while Donald Trump and vulture capitalists seem to have have passed through as well. What has been the impact of this so-called investment in Puerto Rico, and how has this also impacted local business and industry? Yes, and I would like you to talk for a minute about Walmart. Walmart, which is the world's biggest uh, corporation, they have actually received subsidies and tax incentives in order to establish in Puerto Rico far more than the local businesses do. And as is true elsewhere in the world where Walmart establishes itself, 
uh, it tends to drive out local businesses. And instead of full-time businesses and full-time employment with circulation within Puerto Rico of our of our income and our and our, and our uh, spending, you now have uh, these uh, part-time workers with uh, no benefits. And Walmart basically takes most of the profits outside of Puerto Rico and gives little to nothing as far as any type of tax investments or any kind of uh, contribution to Puerto Rico. Once they will have some nice little publicity things, you go there during Christmas time, all of a sudden you'll be shopping in Walmart, and you see all of a sudden Puerto Ricans coming out in their typical dress and singing and dancing, and it's one thing we're known for is singing and dancing, and it's very entertaining, but if you, but you get the idea that uh, they're, uh, this is their contribution while they are bleeding as dry. I'll say a little bit about Donald Trump. Donald Trump uh, has this reputation of being this billionaire who, if he is interested, he's going to bring in a lot of investment. Of course, he gets heavily recruited. He was going to do the Trump Estates, a big golf uh, luxury resort. And he does it through his various businesses. And he didn't actually put his own money. He actually got a big loan from the Puerto Rico in uh, Development Bank. And not only did he not build this luxury investment, but his, uh, that particular company went bankrupt and Puerto Rico cannot, cannot, um, collect on that money. So Donald Trump can go bankrupt and owe Puerto Rico money, but Puerto Rico does not have the, the right to go bankrupt. Local businesses and companies in Puerto Rico also seem to have been impacted by the so-called cabotage rules being enforced by the United States, which create difficulties as far as the import and export of goods to and from Puerto Rico. Tell us about these rules and their impact. Yes, these are incredibly important. Uh, this has really been since uh, the early part of the 20th century that uh, Puerto Rico is forbidden from uh, having anything come into the country or go out of the country except on U.S. registered ships with U.S. crews. Now, if anyone, if you know anything about the United States Merchant Marine, they are the most expensive, least efficient, most obsolete, and least competitive merchant marine on the planet. We, we, if we were able to do our business with anyone, Liberia, Greece, anybody, it would immediately lower our costs for everything. The reason that, uh, and we have been lobbying for, for years to get this change, and it, it, this is actually a point of agreement among all of the political uh, uh, status uh, persuasions in Puerto Rico. The United States Virgin Islands doesn't have this, but we do. And the reason that we have it, basically, is that the merchant, U.S. Merchant Marine would probably disappear if it was not for Puerto Rico. Plus, the U.S. Navy says that those leaky ships are actually an auxiliary in times of national emergency and they don't have to they don't have to maintain them because Puerto Rico's maintaining them and that is basically the reason that we had the cabotage laws now, interestingly, and perhaps not coincidentally, it has been recently announced that there are likely significant oil and gas reserves off of the shores of Puerto Rico. We've heard of similar things in Greece as well. Is this indeed the case? Well, it's interesting because uh, we have gone for many years where, where Puerto Rico, the, the, the old doctrine was that Puerto Rico has absolutely no, quote-unquote, natural resources. 
And so because it is so birthed of natural resources, that means it cannot be independent, and we are so lucky that Uncle Sam wants us. Of course, any place had natural resources, because there happen to be any facets of nature that human beings find profitable. And they wouldn't be there if there wasn't something there that they, that they could make profit on. So from you've gone from years where they would say that we have nothing to, well, we have perhaps some oil and gas resources, but they're too expensive to, to exploit. And now that you're, you're getting to the, to the time where uh, the oil and gas reserves in the world that are available are the ones that used to be not cost-effective to exploit, and now they become cost-effective. So now there is some interest in, in, in granting concessions, and of course the United States controls all this. Puerto Rico doesn't have any control over this. Uh, this has been very quiet. You have to actually look for this information because you don't really see it in the media. But I've been following it for some years, and I know that there is some, there's definitely some interest. There is definitely interest in uh, trying to connect all of the islands of the Caribbean with, uh, with uh, basically with tubes and to generate energy in Puerto Rico more than we need to sell to the rest. And in fact, there is a project that Puerto Ricans are fighting against right now to, to build a giant incinerator, supposedly waste-to-energy incinerator, which would basically fill up Puerto Rico with, uh, with toxic waste in order to generate energy to save. And actually, since we don't have enough garbage, they would actually be looking for uh, to burning the garbage of other places. The, the person who is in charge of this actually had his start in Albany, New York, which is kind of interesting. And he's now living in, uh, in luxury in the Virgin Islands. Now, one thing that we hear a lot in Greece is that the country does not produce enough food and enough resources in order to sustain its population, that the country cannot survive without the European Union and without its membership in the Eurozone. And this sounds very similar to what you were just saying about Puerto Rico. Is this a narrative that is heard even about issues such as food production in uh, Puerto Rico? Absolutely. At the time that the U.S. actually invaded and occupied Puerto Rico at the turn of the 20th century, Puerto Rico was not only self-sustaining, but it was exporting to other other islands as well. So you had a situation where nearly all arable land was taken over by sugar and the production, local production of foods actually dropped dramatically and uh, instead the, uh, the big corporations, for example, California Rice began to be imported into Puerto Rico to feed people and also with the idea that we need to industrialize our, 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 our water resources weren't that important, our, our, our soils were not important, and we need really to basically fill them all up with cement, industrialize, urbanize, and we could import all the foods we need. And what has happened in Puerto Rico is there has been created a preference for imported goods. And so to this day, somewhere between 70 to 80 percent of all the food in Puerto Rico that is consumed is actually imported. And it's not the good stuff. It is the eggs and the other and the chicken that they can't get rid of in the United States that comes to Puerto Rico. Not coincidentally, you see the incidence of the diabetes and cancer and all kinds of hypertension, all kinds of uh, gastrointestinal diseases have also increased. Despite all of this, uh, Puerto Rico has incredibly uh, fertile soils, has a terrific 
climate, as a very diverse climate, and we actually have abundant water. Uh, a drought that's happening, nonetheless, it's mainly an issue of distribution. We do have abundant water. We have over 200 rivers, thousands of, of, um, of creeks, and, uh, and enough soil still that if we were able to turn our people back to growing what we need and to coming back to loving our own food. And Puerto Ricans do love our own food. We're very attached to our food, to our culture, to our music. But making that a, an, an object of preference and actually providing a distribution of, uh, of products and make it more available to people so that they will, they will buy our products and generate our own, our own food and our own businesses. We are speaking with the retired professor of ethnic studies and geography, Deborah Berman-Santana, here on the Dialogos Radio and the Dialogos Interview Series. And Deborah, let's talk now about what the system of governance looks like in a colony. What is the political and electoral system like in Puerto Rico? What sort of representation does the island have or not have in Washington? And what is the mentality of voters in Puerto Rico toward their political parties? Well, Puerto Rico has been defined by the U.S. Supreme Court as a, um, an unincorporated territory belonging to but not a part of the United States. In the early part of the 1950s, the United States promoted a uh, cosmetic change in the government of Puerto Rico and defined it as a, a commonwealth, that's in English, or in Spanish, Estado Libre Asociado, an associated free state, free state, and we say we're not associated, we're not free, we're not a state, and, and that was meant to uh, to get Puerto Rico taken off the United Nations list of non-self-governing territories, because if you're on that list, the colonizer needs to report every year. And for the past 33 years, Puerto Rico has come before the Committee on Decolonization in, 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 in the United Nations, and they have voted every single year to bring it before the General Assembly, and of course the United Nations has vetoed it every year. So what, what the government looks like is we have uh, two houses, we have a governor, and we have voting every four years. We have also a non-voting resident commissioner who uh, sits in committees in the House of Representatives in uh, Washington, but does not have a vote. He does have a vote on committees and can speak, but he cannot vote on, on, the, on the floor. So that is, our, uh, that is our, our representation, which is less than what we had under Spain. We cannot do our own economic treaties. I mean, we do have uh, we do have different relations. We can do some some economic things. But if there's ever any issue, the United States can step in and basically veto it. I, generally, uh, we have a huge apparatus called the the federal building. Yeah, we also call the, the colonial building, which looks something like the U.S. Embassy here in Greece or in many other countries, only bigger. <laughs> and we have the U.S. Federal Court, the Colonial Court, which is only in English. The judges right there at the moment are all Puerto Ricans, but you have to do everything in English there. And so it, this is actual circus. You go in there, and they're all speaking in English. Even people, most, people, most Puerto Ricans do not speak English. We call it el difícil, the difficult one, uh, because people don't want to speak it. Uh, but even if they speak English, when you're in the uh, this, the federal court proceedings, people will not speak English, they'll speak Spanish, so you have to have a, a translator, and many times a translator knows less English than the people in the audience. So this, this is a real, um, a real carnival. At the same time, you also have the, the Puerto Rican courts, 
which are based on, on Roman law, just like all the Latin American and, and the Mediterranean countries, where, of course, the federal uh, court is Anglo-Saxon law. And one will supersede the other. I'll give you an example. Uh, uh, Puerto Rico does not have the right to, uh, to declare bankruptcy, both in Chapter 9, as do the states. So in order to try to deal with this debt crisis, the Puerto Rican government actually passed a law, sort of like a, a local, uh, called the Criollo, our local uh, Chapter 9, and uh, the creditors basically sued in federal court and won. So we can't do that either. So I, I criticize, obviously, I have a lot of criticisms about our government. Uh, they are just as corrupt, and because uh, the the government doesn't have any sovereignty, but they do have the right to use budget to give to their friends, to give their contracts to their friends. And you know, people in Greece will probably be very familiar with this. But um, they did actually make some effort to try to come up with some situation. And because of our status, because of our colonial status, uh, so far we've not been successful in anything. An issue that seems to be a political hot potato in Puerto Rico is that of independence, similarly to how Grexit is a hot potato in Greece in recent years. How is the issue of independence viewed by the majority of the Puerto Rican people, and how do you view this issue? The issue of independence has been criminalized in Puerto Rico. Uh, there has been tremendous repression. We have had many political prisoners. We have one at the moment named Oscar Lopez Rivera, who has been in prison for 34 years of a 75-year sentence for seditious conspiracy to overthrow the government of the United States in Puerto Rico. He has not been accused or convicted of any violent crime. And we are currently in, in, in a international campaign to pressure President Obama to, to, to free him. And we've had many others. Uh, there have been uh, many violent deaths. There have uh, been uh, many uh, forced exiles. And a tremendous amount of fear, of repression. Most people in Puerto Rico, and we've been taught basically that Puerto Rico does not have the, um, the capacity neither the human capacity nor the natural resources capacity to be independent. And most people believe that. When you go to school in Puerto Rico, there used to be a, um, a, a geography book about Puerto Rico that you started getting, I believe it was the second grade, by a uh, man, a North American by the name of Muller, that said Puerto Rico is a small island without natural resources and it's overpopulated and so it cannot be uh, independent and it needs to rely on the United States. This is the first thing you learn. So one of the things that I myself have had to basically decolonize myself, this has really been one of my own uh, inspirations for going on to school and eventually become a professor. And it was the whole idea of why uh, am I told that I'm, uh, that I'm less than everyone else? Why am I told that I have to depend on someone else? And it's a personal thing, but it's also... A, a national issue. Uh, so at the moment, uh, the independence people who openly support independence and is open and then there's hidden support for independence is Israeli small. We do have an independence party that gets maybe about four or five percent of the vote maybe. It's had more in other times, other times it's had less. Most pro-independence uh, supporters do not actually support the party because there's a tremendous amount of division among Puerto Rican independent supporters. We're very, very fractured. When we unify, we actually uh, can achieve some wonderful things, but we are incredibly divided for, for many, many reasons. 
Then there are other people who will vote for one or the other majority parties for some strategic reason to keep the other one out, or some people actually vote for the state party because they think that if Puerto Rico asks for statehood, of course the Congress is going to say no. And then others will vote for the colonialist parties as well. We can't vote for statehood under any circumstance, and maybe we can get some autonomy. Uh, so it's back and forth. And then there are many people who refuse to vote because it is a colonial process. And I don't come from a political family. I come from a very poor family. And uh, I personally believe that we really have no way out unless we can basically take some responsibility and have some power to, do, to decide our own future. Independence does not guarantee it by itself, but there is no way that you have the possibility of, uh, of having enough sovereignty to make your own decisions without independence. To be independent, we could uh, actually do some federation or join with the um, wonderful unifying uh, uh, collaborations that are happening in Latin America right now. We are a Latin American country. Uh, we, there's a saying in Latin America that the independence of Latin America is not complete without Puerto Rico. I believe that. I've, I've spent um, a fair amount of time in Latin America. And the thing that has always impressed me is that we have been so isolated uh, so part of a uh, iron curtain of colonialism, so uh, 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 affected by an embargo, at least as strong as that of Cuba's and less known, that we don't even know that we're not isolated. We don't even know that we have what we call a patria grande, um, megali uh, patria, you know, a, a great, a greater country, and that's Latin America, and. Um, I, I believe it's our destiny. I believe we, do, we won't survive unless we do it. And I believe also that if we can see our way to knowing that we do have the, the ability to rely on ourselves, I think it would happen very quickly because despite everything, Puerto Ricans, even those who say they support statehood, we are very strong in our national identity, our cultural identity. If you've, I'm sure here in Greece you saw what happened when in, in 2004 when the Puerto Rican Olympic team uh, beat uh, beat very badly the United States and when Carlos Arroyo uh, puffed out his, his his shirt I remember watching that we have never forgotten that and he is loved for that one moment I, I understand in Greece you all uh, I heard you all uh, uh, chanting Puerto Rico and uh, we uh, are very uh, very grateful to to Greece for that as well. Now, having discussed all of this, how did you personally develop your own interest in Greece and in the Greek language, and what brought you to Greece at this time? Well, it's interesting. I've had a lifelong interest and affinity uh, with Greece. I grew up uh, partly in New York. That's why I, I speak English well. And um, I live there uh, live there and in Puerto Rico. I had some some background in, 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 in my on my father's grandfather's family and Ottoman areas, uh, Constantinople and Palestine, and possibly in, 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 in Crete as well. And uh, I've always felt an affinity for the music, for the culture, for the food. And uh, years ago, I actually spent some time in Greece. Uh, it was, to be honest, it was the only part of Europe that I visited that I would care to visit again. <laughs> I, I felt uh, very close. I felt a lot of, a lot of affinity. And... Um, when uh, I've always looked for ways to make that connection again, a few years ago I, I began to get a, a, an opportunity to actually study Greece. I'm, I'm Greek, so I'm actually studying. I can't speak very well, but I can read. 
and begin to understand, and also with the, the issue of the crisis happening in Greece and in Puerto Rico at the same time, I've been reading both and sort of, and noticing how similar stories are. And, uh, thinking in my mind about how we can do things about not only protests and resistance, but also to promote uh, solidarity and oral tourism, perhaps through some exchanges. We are on the air with retired professor of ethnic studies and geography, Deborah Berman-Santana, here on the Alagos Radio and in the Alagos interview series. And Deborah, based on your own experience from back home in Puerto Rico, and also having followed the developments in Greece, would you characterize Greece at this time as a sovereign country or one which more closely resembles a colony? And as a second part to this question, what do you believe the people of Greece should do to overcome this crisis? Well, speaking, of course, as an outsider, but as an outsider, with uh, with uh, some uh, some similarities and some affinities, uh, Greece, of course, is officially a sovereign country. We have all the trappings of a sovereign country. It reminds me very much of Latin America before the recent 20, 30 years, where you have those trappings of a sovereign country, but in terms of real governance, a very much a, a very colonial, an oligarchy, of course, that that um, that benefits from it and is only too happy to serve the interests of the outside powers. It seems to me that the uh, the membership in a unequal union, such as the European Union, and especially the Eurozone, where all members are not equal, has actually taken away more of Greece's sovereign ability to make its own decisions. For example, if you want to do things with your, with your uh, uh, economy, say, uh, uh, devalue the, the currency, uh, control more what comes in, what goes out. It's impossible to do it in the Eurozone. And I found very interesting, uh, this last, because the first time I was here, uh, Greece was not part of the Eurozone. I found it very interesting to see the EU flag next to the Greek flag almost everywhere that I go. And all I could think of was in the United in, in Puerto Rico, where we're uh, in many cases forced to have the United States flag next to the Puerto Rican flag, and actually most Puerto Ricans won't do that. But in, in official wins, we call the U.S. flag La Pecosa, which means the freckly one. And I was looking at the U.S. at the EU flag and I was thinking, that's another Pecosa. And um, and where would we be without her? That's a, that's a saying in in Puerto Rico for the people who are pro statehood. Not that they love the United States, but where would we be without her? And I, I find that so similar. And uh, a number of the things that I've heard from, from Greeks who were talking about their fears of going back to the bad days of the drachma, which, you know, uh, I didn't think they were so bad when I was here, but of course I'm not from here, so I, I don't want to, you know, I, I can't say. But I'm saying, so there's a part of me that says, what are you afraid of? And part of me, and even Puerto Ricans say, you know something, you at least have the trappings of sovereignty. You can actually take them and do them. We have a, we have much farther to go than you do. And I'm almost like saying, almost as a Puerto Rican, do it and give us hope that we can do it too. Now in closing, is there anything that you would like to say in Greek to our listeners? Alelegi, apoto Puerto Rico. Ego, agapo, Niki, 
Well, Deborah, ευχαριστώ πολύ. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today on the Alagos Radio and for these very interesting insights as to what has been happening in Puerto Rico. And I'll say in Puerto Rico, que vive Puerto Rico libre, que vive Grecia libre.